0: Hello and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackman. And I'm Kevin Hector. And it's my pleasure to welcome today our guest David Lambert, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is a specialist in the Hebrew Bible and the history of its interpretation. David is the author of uh, the book, How Repentance Became Biblical, Judaism, Christianity, and the Interpretation of Scripture which was awarded the 2016 AAR Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion. He's now moved on to another project, a related project that we want to talk to him about today, uh, and that's a project about scripture and its conceptualization. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you, Jeff and, and Kevin. I'm so glad to be here and, and honored to be invited to, to speak with the two of you.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, let's jump right in by just starting with the basic question. Tell us a little bit about this project on scripture that you're working on
1: yeah sure well uh this this project really um, was something um quite quite new for me that that came off of a tangent that I followed up in my first project. It started off with an observation uh, about this ancient Jewish text not so well known outside of academia known as the book of jubilees from the second century bce and while i was reading it um, for my um, first book project i i I realized that uh, it it doesn't it really doesn't seem to be operating with the same kind of relationship to the bible that many of us imagine to have started at that time and continued on to this day that is to say it didn't really seem to be thinking about the Bible in the same way as Scripture. What do you do with Scripture? Well, you you know, you have a reader and the, the Scripture is kind of an authoritative text out of which you try to draw some meaning, some message, and you relate to the text as an authority. And it seemed to me that even though he was deeply familiar with the text of the Bible, used the text extensively, that he wasn't putting himself in that what you might call scriptural relationship to the text. And so that got me to start thinking about whether or not this uh, scriptural relationship was a single thing, was an absolute kind of way of relating to the Bible, which is implied by such ideas when we talk about how at some point in ancient Judaism and the Bible became scripture. It assumes that it uh, assumed a certain kind of fixed status in in relationship to Uh, Jews and then of course later on uh, Christians as well. So I began to really call into question whether there was anything that we could call a sort of fixed relationship uh, to the Bible or whether it really wouldn't be more productive uh, to think about a series of different ways of assembling ultimately what the Bible was that changed through time, whether it was ancient Judaism, moving into early Christianity, uh, rabbinic Judaism, all the way to the medieval period and ultimately up to the modern period, whether they're really, is it really helpful to talk about the Bible as being scripture in all those periods, or would it be better to imagine a series of ongoing and changing uh, assemblages uh, through time? Um, And that's what I ultimately set out to do. Uh, in, this, in this project, to make the argument that what we have are a series of assemblages of what the Bible is and how to relate to it, rather than a fixed relationship. And I, I make that argument in this book, focusing on ancient Judaism, although I think the implications move beyond it. So then I think
2: I have a couple of questions that I think um, are related to each other and that I think follow up, hopefully, on what you're saying. One is that I, I would be interested to hear more about how you then do conceptualize scripture, right? There are lots of assemblages. Not all of the sem- these assemblages would count as scripture, obviously. So what counts as a scriptural assemblage? And the second question I think is related to this, and it's we can think of it as the Pluto problem, right? So you could think, well, Pluto is one of the planets, and if that doesn't fit with our conception of planets, then we need to change our conception of planets. Or you could think this is what planets are, therefore Pluto's not one of them and it gets kicked out of, you know, planetary membership. Uh, So are you thinking of like dwarf scripture? You'd have dwarf scripture. But I mean, if if the, I mean, so one moral to take from this uh, asymmetry with the book of Jubilees is, oh, so maybe it shouldn't be counted as scripture. Or the other is to say, if this is scripture, then we need to revise our understanding of what scripture is, right? So- for short, the Pluto problem. Uh, yeah. I think these might be related, but I either way, I'd love to hear you talk about
1: both of those. Yeah, sure. Well, there's, a, there's a lot there. And, and let me see if I can, uh, I think, first try to speak to the, to, to the, to the first question. And so to give an example, which is really uh, corresponds to the, the structure of the book project, as I see it, uh, I, I would, I would see the project, but also, to some extent, the uses of scripture, Uh, in ancient Judaism uh, as falling along what you might see as three different main areas. One is relating to the Bible as a kind of legal authority, uh, a source of law. Uh, The other would be relating to the Bible uh, specifically as having uh, information about the present, that is to say, to read the Bible um, as looking toward and informing um matters having to do with some far off future if we're going to think about the bible uh being written in the time of ancient israel and i call that one uh, apocalyptic uh it would, it would be a, there'd be other ways of thinking about it but um i think you know you see that for instance in the gospels a lot uh where we'll assume that this passage in psalms is actually talking about jesus and his life right but you also see that in jubilees so there there's a similarity there And then the other would be what I see as a more pedagogical use, Um, to give an example of that, turning to the patriarchs contrary to the merit that they sometimes seem to exhibit in some of their less seemly moments. Uh, The the example I always give to my students is Abraham's apparent willingness to hand Sarah over to to Pharaoh, Uh, but we could certainly come up with um, other examples. But it was very clear that certain uh, groups were committed to reading uh, the patriarchs not only as uh, founders of Israel say, originators in some way, but also as models for for one's own moral behavior. Um, And so I, I look at these three different kinds of assemblages, the legal, the apocalyptic, the pedagogical, or the exemplary, and all of these, of course, are are pretty familiar to us. Um, These do not surprise uh, modern readers of the Bible because they've also, these assemblages have carried through to uh, how Jews and Christians have read the Bible and even people who are secular who read the Bible also often kind of come with that series of expectations as to what the Bible is as a book. Some of these have traveled forward as well into what our expectation of what literature is as well uh, and what literature should do. What's interesting though when you look at it in the context of ancient Judaism is that none of these expectations or assemblages are shared among the different people producing them. Um, They're very specific to the contexts in which they arise. And so Jubilees, who's quite interested in in apocalypses, it's not surprising that he essentially turns the Pentateuch in a certain way into an apocalypse. Philo is very concerned with moral pedagogy. And so in Philo's eyes, the patriarchs become moral exemplars, but they don't share common assumptions between, between them. So what that suggests to me is that there was no one thing that we could call scripture that had certain fixed properties but rather that they were all doing different kinds of things with the Bible. To put it differently, and I, and I think this perhaps now gets more specifically to your question of, you know what's the commonality here? What do we see? They're all doing stuff with the Bible, but ultimately what they end up doing with it is, is, is quite different. Uh, the one analogy that I like to use is the idea of uh, globalization or sometimes what we think of as uh, neoliberalism. That there are certain forces in the world toward globalization and we can identify these in the United States and we can identify these in China. Um, and and we can identify these in Europe and Africa and so on and so forth. But uh, as some anthropologists in particular uh, uh, has, has, has focused on and, and, and I, I appreciated her work on this is how you really still can't talk about neoliberalism as a single identity. Because ultimately, what it is, is wh- how it combines to the local use and to local, localized governments, populations, and so on and so forth. So there is, while, while on the one hand, there's a global form, the Bible, the Bible never ultimately receives any sort of reality or never achieves any kind of existence without joining with local forces that are ultimately using it. And so that's how I think we can have a, and should have, a conversation, a shared conversation around the Bible, on the one hand. And on the other hand, what the Bible is in Alexandria, in Egypt, where Philo is is working, or back in the land of Israel itself, under Roman rule, or in Babylon, for the rabbis later on, Cannot be seen as the same thing. Same words, to the mo- for the most part, to be sure. Sometimes it's in translation. Sometimes it's it's not. But ultimately, how it combines with local uses is uh, very different. Now that that doesn't quite get to the Pluto question, but um, I think maybe it maybe it does in a way because I think what it shows is that um, I'm less interested here in trying to arrive at a definitive definition of what scripture is, and to determine whether this constitutes scripture or not. And more concerned about the problems that having a single term like scripture causes for our ability to describe the variety of uses that the Bible ultimately gets put to.
0: So David, can I follow up on that? Because you know, even getting to the Pluto question a little bit more, What I hear you saying is that you're arguing in some sense for uh, scripture as a weak category rather than a strong one. That if in the history of biblical reception, scripture has been understood as uh, a primary category, uh, a particularly strong category, that you're pointing to something that is common, but what I hear you saying is that what's common is not all that important. Is that a fair characterization?
1: I think it, yes. I think it can be terribly important uh, in the sense that certain common, certain commonalities transfer through time and, and, and become really quite um, significant socially, significant in different religious communities. But, but there is no essence of commonality there. There is no essential relationship that is ultimately described. And so, you know, I think it's fine to talk about scripture as a way of, as, a, as you say, a weak category, um, as a way of formulating a certain kind of topic for study, as long as we realize that scripture isn't structure, that there isn't a single structural relationship. And I, uh, will often say things like we shouldn't talk about scripture, um, not because I don't think it couldn't have a role as a weak category, as you say, but simply because I think so often when we do, it bears with it much more of the implications of a strong category uh, that implies mm-hmm. uh, certain kinds of attributes um, that simply might not be, be present for different interpreters, different readers.
2: So I have a, a, a question to follow up on some of the things that you've been saying. If I hear you correctly, what you're saying is, we now have this picture, uh, this conceptualization of scripture, according to which it's more or less this sort of one fixed thing, but doing some historical work would, uh, at the very least, upset the easiness of assuming that it's just this one fixed thing. So I take it that somewhere in the interim, as a matter of historical fact, there were some shifts that led us to have this changed perspective on what scripture is. On the one hand, I'm wondering if you have ideas about how to account for that historical shift, partly because it would be interesting for me to think further about how we got to the place where we are now, as opposed to the place where, if you're right, we were then. Mm but also because I'm I'm interested to know how you would say on the basis of the story you're telling that those moves, those historical developments are wrong, right, because by your own lights, if this is just, right. if this is a thinner kind of conception, then it can't really do normative work in, in its own right to say that this kind of way of assembling things is the wrong way of doing so.
1: Thank you, uh, great question. So the first thing that I, I think you I think you 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 said it, and it and it bears repeating though um, that according to this to, to this way of looking at, at uh, the history of the Bible, the way we talk about the Bible even to this day is actively engaged in the process of forming what the Bible is, or if you want to use the scripture word, what scripture is. So there is no one moment in which that formation is complete. What, uh, you know, Jeff chooses to teach in his introduction to Hebrew Bible is a choice that actually is not just an interpretive choice um, but actually has to be seen as having a certain kind of responsibility for formulating what the Bible even is and therefore what we can even do with it. So it's not just a matter of, you know, Jeff or I, as biblical scholars might interpret a passage differently, it's much more profound than that. We're actually engaged in the work uh, of trying to think about how it's even appropriate to relate to this text, how we even ought to relate. So it's not, not just what to, how to read it, but how to even relate to it. So what do we do then with authors, histor- historical figures who clearly do not see that kind of ongoing quality to um, this? And, and how do we account for them? And I, I think it's a, it, it, it's a you know, as I said, an important question, uh, I, and, I, and I only, I think I can make only a kind of a beginning answer to that. Um, but one of the interesting points that I've come across is that when we do speak of scripture, we are almost invariably trying to stake out a certain kind of structure that also includes with it a set boundary for the community in which we are operating. Now that can operate, that can function in a variety of different ways. Um, Talking about a series of books as scripture and not others can be a way of differentiating yourself from other groups. Interestingly enough, one of the uses of scripture that I have found to be so most adamant Uh, and most pertinent to modern scholars is that biblical scholars today are very adamant about this idea that the Bible did at some point in time become scripture. And I think the reason for it is this. In many ways, the idea that this collection of ancient Israelite texts at some point assumed this scriptural status is a way of ultimately constituting the field of biblical studies itself. And it does so in at least two ways. One is it gives, it it, it clarifies why is it that the Bible is ultimately an object of study. Now, many of us don't just study the Bible. We also study the ancient Near East. We also study the history of interpretation. But nevertheless, when we teach those introductions, the way we conceptualize the field, it is invariably built around the Bible, which is a theological category. So how do we justify that? Well, one way of justifying is that is saying it's not just a theological category, but that in fact, at some point in time, people historically chose this book to be their scripture. Well, if that's the case, then we have a kind of historical justification for the field. It also does something else very important for the field, which is that it brings Jews and Christians together around a common study rather than saying, Christians have their Bible, Jews have their Bible. These are completely different things for each group. It posits a moment before Christianity, before rabbinic Judaism, in which the Bible came to have this authoritative status, which was then inherited by the early Christians, by rabbinic Jews. And and so there's a way in which it um, creates a common object that defines the field, defines the group that we're operating, in this case, in a very open way. So what I would suggest, when we find a discourse, when we find a kind of conversation that's committed to scripture as an identity, I think we need to then look behind what that's trying to do with that. It's how it's trying to stake out a certain kind of group, how it, what sort of relationship among the members in that group is it trying to Uh, stake out. Now, of course, a very famous example would be the work of, of, uh, would be Martin Luther, um, who in his cry, scripture alone, right, let's sola scriptura, let's cut off scripture from any other sort of tradition, which has become assembled and attached to it. Because now I hasten to add, in the Middle Ages, and in the church, it was never just the Bible. This idea of scripture alone didn't exist. The scripture was always assembled with other traditions and authority, priestly authority and so on and so forth as to how to read it. The Bible wasn't even necessarily authoritative in translation at that point, right? It was used, well, outside of the Vulgate, right? So um, it, it was not even something that one could access in this straightforward kind of, uh, uh, kind of way, scripture alone. Uh, so the very idea of creating a category of scripture alone is already a way of demarcating a certain relationship to other religious groups, other historical practices. And I, and I do think that a, a lot of the origin of that kind of very strong, scripture is a strong category uh, we'd have to see as, as dating to that time period. I want to follow up on that because
0: in some ways I feel put under the microscope, uh, but in the friendliest of ways, but I want to follow up with that on that with uh, a question because I felt like I was hearing you going in multiple directions, which I think is not necessarily a problem here. It speaks to the complexity of the issue, but when you talk about, say, situating the Bible amidst other ancient Near Eastern texts, amidst its early interpretation, uh, there's Uh, a version of uh, what you described in the Middle Ages, the Bible amidst other kinds of traditions, a larger assemblage. And you contrasted that with the sola scriptura approach. Uh, At the same time, you also talked about the importance of scripture as a category for defining the field of biblical studies uh, and the prestige that's associated with the Bible as scripture. And that can sort of justify uh, the field itself. Do you see those two observations as going in different directions? Uh, do you see complexity in in those characterizations?
1: I do. I mean, I think it. What it does is it throws us as as scholars, um, as thinkers, as people who have to be see themselves as responsible for the institutions in which they operate, for the traditions in which their field works. So uh, there's been a lot of work done on the, re- the relationship of biblical studies as an academic field specifically to uh, the Protestant Reformation. And I think that's, that, that, is, that is very important work. So what I see us having to do as scholars is to be upfront, honest, and able to map out the various connections that our scholarship, what we do, ultimately has to various different historical movements. And so I think we can say that the isolation of the Bible as an object of study does have a certain relationship to sola scriptura. That doesn't mean that we should not be doing what we do. It means that there is complexity, that we have a complex relationship to the historical past. And we do best, I think, when we map out those connections to the past, because that allows us as needed to then, what I like to talk about as unplugging or disconnecting uh, perhaps certain elements of these assemblages that we've inherited and that we work with. We may find that there are problems with aspects of that inheritance. We need to identify those, we need to show the connections historically, uh, and then we can also move beyond. And I think there's been a major move, for instance, within biblical studies, what I see as one of the most important moves within biblical studies in the past, you know, really, uh, I guess it's almost a half century now or so, but the move toward focusing on what gets called interbiblical interpretation or the history of interpretation, a move toward uh, looking not just for original meaning in the biblical text, but for seeing how already within the Bible itself there are moments in which earlier biblical texts are getting read and reread, and then certainly beyond the Bible, uh, this process continues. That move is a move toward making new connections, it's a move toward trying to end this isolation of the Bible, sola scriptura but it's done in a way that doesn't necessarily disrupt or disregard uh, the very substantial uh, insights that have been earned and gained uh, through a approach that was more of a kind of sola scriptura approach. And so I see this as an act of reassembly um, rather than simply uh, a kind of complete cutting off uh, from the, from, mm-hmm. from the elements of the past that are still very much part of our present.
2: So then I have a question that follows up, I think directly on Jeff's and I'll formulate it in a way that is designed to elicit an allergic reaction from Jeff. Uh...
1: <laughs> I see, I see the two of you know each other well at this point. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's <is> right. <laughs> um, So you've talked with respect to your thesis vis-a-vis biblical studies. I'm wondering about your thesis vis-a-vis another field like constructive theology. So theologians historically have often made use of scripture, of the Bible, in lots of different ways. For the most part, my sense is that um, academic biblical scholars would think that there's been some mischief in theologians use of the bible but it sounds like given the way you've talked about um this series of assemblages and the fact that there is this ongoing constitution of both the bible and of its uptake that there's no principled reason why theologians would be answerable to biblical scholars right these are just alternative ways of taking up uh for instance the hebrew bible and so uh, jeff could uh, I, this is a counterfactual example but if if i said <laughs> ah yes we see the trinity in uh throughout genesis and jeff says that's right you've you you're that's so anachronistic, I, I almost sprained my eyes reading it. <laughs> I, could, I could, by rights, just respond, well, that's because you're assembling these things differently than I am, and we, at best, just have to have a sort of non-aggression pact. I'm, I'm putting this a bit hyperbolically, but yeah. hopefully you get the idea, right? So yeah. how do you have some guardrails on the sort of uptake that your project
1: would warrant? So I, 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 you know, I, I actually would happen to basically agree with you. I mean, I think that the history of the use of the Bible is a history of mischief. <laughs> it's, and um, what's interesting, though, is to always ask what kind of mischief and what is that mischief doing with the Bible? What is the work that the assemblage uh, is, is accomplishing? Uh, I think in this case, uh, you ask about guardrails. Uh, it would be hard to suggest the presence of guardra- any guardrails other than the work that our own historical description can do. So if you did, for instance, want to um, read the Trinity uh, into Genesis, I could even su- suggest some places to start, um, uh, which historically, of course, have been used, uh, like the, the three... Uh, individual beings showing up to visit Abraham uh, after his circumcision in in Genesis 18. Um, There's also, of course, the let us make humankind, uh, which is famously used. Um, So there's definitely some potential for some good mischief there. Um, And what I would say is, look, I think as as scholars of the Bible, as historians, um, the most we can do is to say, let me show you what else is involved in that assemblage? Let me show you the full implications. Let me show you what else that connects to historically. Well, among other things, um, it removes the Bible, potentially, unless this is handled with care, as a Jewish document, right? So do you want to make that move? Do you want to create that kind of uh, uh, assemblage? Um, so the, I think what, what we can do is, is to simply map out the totality of where uh, a given reading assemblage would be going um, as a kind of control mechanism where the control is simply uh, a full kind of uh, transparency. So I do think though that there, I, I, I think one of the main implications of this work, one of the major implications um, is that our work as biblical scholars does not end with the moment in which the Bible becomes scripture, which is in fact where many of our competencies go up to, you know, go up to some place in, in, ancient Judaism where we imagine the text now has been mostly fixed and it's been accepted as scripture. And, and, you know, so maybe we'll study the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, but we'll pretty much end around 70 CE with the destruction of the second temple, which is when many scholars would date this moment that the Bible takes on this kind of status, replacing the temple. But uh, I would say, uh, it, well, of course, uh, we can only have the competencies that we have, and we all can choose to work in certain time periods, that, that, that yes, ultimately the work of constructive theology that is done with the Bible, and you know, I'd also want to add, um, to move away from the erudite and the, the theological, I would also add, um, and, and in other media as well. Um, so what the Bible becomes in popular culture, what the Bible becomes in cinema, going back to the medieval period, what the Bible becomes in stained glass, um, which is a kind of uh, very important uh, in the context in which people are not necessarily able to read the Bible in any language, um, not necessarily knowing Latin, uh, but they're encountering biblical stories through these public uh, edifices, and that in a sense, is what the Bible is for them. Um, it's these, these stories, these images, these, and you'll also note that, uh, of course, the many of the scenes are very focused on individual people. So it's the personages of the biblical figures um, that become prominent. And, and so I would see that as a kind of an assemb- a biblical assemblage of, of sorts. So yes, I, I think we do need to see everything from the theological, uh, and what we would need to do though, and here's where this kind of honest question of honesty and transparency would, 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 would tend towards is I do think that uh, a, a responsible act of a constructive theologian would to be clear uh, about where historically speaking, their observations are, are coming from, what they do ultimately connect to. And I think there have been, cons- you know, cons- uh, disc- theological discussions uh, that have made great use of modern biblical scholarship and have even made responsible use of modern biblical scholarship. But all of these connections need to be traced um, and ideally made as, as openly um, for their uh, recipients as possible, yeah.
0: David, I wanna push you just a little bit further on Kevin's question uh, because in your answer, you know, which I, I think is very helpful, um, you continue to articulate certain value judgments, uh, and so if I can you know be very pointed about it,
1: part of what I hear in Kevin's question is, can you call it mischief? Well, I call it mischief in the in the, in, the, in the best sense uh, um, in, in the sense that uh, um,
0: the kind of mischief we like our kids to get into
1: yes i think well i you know I, I, I think that that it is. I don't think there's a moment in, in, with, in which there is not being mischief done, being done uh, because I think that's what human beings do. We use objects um, and we use objects based on the situations that we find ourselves to be in at the moment. Uh, and so I don't know that there would be a possibility for taking up a text and not using it in one way or another in ways that connects to the present, even if it's our intention to understand it, in its ancient context, and we can do that. But part of the overall assemblage of what we're doing, we're doing that from a modern research university for certain reasons that relate to modernity and some of our concerns now. Uh, so I, I really don't think I, I have a, um, a, a value judgment uh, there when I say mischief. Uh, I, I think that um, whenever we pick up that text, there's going to be a there's there, there is going that that is what we do, and you can see this even within the Bible uh, that that how um, uh, certain biblical texts are used and deployed and incorporated. Um, you know, one of the great acts of mischief uh, that Jeff, you know, uh, quite a bit about uh, is, is the way in, in, in which Deuteronomy ultimately gets uh, and, and, and its law code ultimately gets placed side by side with the Covenant Code, which it, in many ways, kind of rewrites, updates, sure. changes, and did not necessarily, you know, plan to have appear alongside of it. Uh, so that, that, is, that is a certain kind of uh, 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 mischief already in the biblical uh, periods. And I think that's just, uh, I, I think that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. I think that, that, you know, that um, we uh, do things with texts. And therefore, um, they are going to be uh, engaging in one way or another, uh, our contemporary situations. Just a brief follow up on this. I'd be interested to hear what kind of
2: reaction you've received from the biblical studies community. Um, Partly because one version of this sounds like this is an existential threat to the field itself insofar as it's constituted. (laughs) Uh, by a particular <laughs> taken-for-granted assumption about scripture, or it's a more modest sort of tweak in a perhaps a more pragmatic kind of direction. But either way, I would just be interested to know what kind of uh, yeah what kind of response you've been getting from from your colleagues.
1: Well, uh, it's still I'm I'm still beginning to get that. Um, I, I I did do uh, an event. Um, uh, recently, uh, where there was a, a discussion and a reaction to my first uh, chapter. And I think that um, there, there is a sense that the field is ready to move in new directions. Um, I would say that this work, I should hasten to add also that the, the, the work that I'm trying to theorize here very much builds on um, work that has been being done Already, I mentioned interest in biblical interpretation. Um, I also think that there's been some really important work being done in, in ancient Judaism around non-biblical texts that seem to have a kind of scriptural relationship to them. Uh, so the way in which we can't just presu- presume the Bible uh, as the only components that people are relating to in these in these various kinds of ways, and that really uh, explodes the concept of the Bible for us in significant ways. So I, I see myself as building off of that, that work in particular. Um, I think it's the, especially with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there's been a lot of exciting, and, and with their publication being completed now for a number of years already, there's been a lot of exciting, more theoretical work being done to sort of rethink the nature of how people related to the, to the Bible. So, you know, I I, I do think that uh, there, there is something new here. It's trying to change the conversation, but the way I see it is that it's not so much, and you can understand this based on my idea of assemblage as well. It's not so much an attempt to overthrow the field as much as it is to unplug it from some of the language that it's been using. Because I believe at this point uh, it's done the work that it can do and is, and is holding us back. So I, I'm, I'm kind of in between those two possibilities that you suggested. I don't think this is just a tweak. I do think that this is a pretty thorough overhaul of the language that we've been using for the field, but I would say there have already been people trying to push in that direction. I'm not sure that the language has been fully articulated that would allow us to just keep going. Uh, and And fully soar uh, into these uh, into these new new areas so that's that 's kind of what i 'm trying to kind of help that 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 movement along here um, with this this book project
0: so David this leads right to the question that we like to ask all of our guests, uh, and that is in this project, what is the biggest question driving you uh,
1: that 's something i've i've i 've had to think about um, and um I think actually the biggest question driving me really has to do with how to think about what is what, what, what ways are the possibilities before us fixed and what ways are they open? Um, so I think one of the difficult things uh, in terms of thinking about the history of Judaism and Christianity, is that it is often told in a way, and and here I would say, especially the history of Judaism, Um, it's often told in a way uh, that suggests uh, simply a sort of kind of inheritance of a relatively fixed tradition. And of course, we know that interpretations changed and, and things did change, but we still, I think, operate with a sense of all of the possibilities are not necessarily before us, and even as scholars, I would say now, moving outside of the religious context to the academic context, I think that as scholars we sometimes feel like our hands are tied as well. Um, that you know we're 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 really focusing on situating the Bible in its historical context in ancient Israel, and you know we can't just come along and say what we will. And so, in this, for me at least this project was really a process of trying to think about how on the one hand, of course, we find ourselves in fixed situations. We find ourselves in academia, for instance, or in a traditional, uh, in a, in a, maybe a particular Christian denomination or a a certain synagogue where there are only certain, only certain possibilities open to you as to how to approach the text. So yes, we are subject to society. We are subject, to forms of structure and things that are fixed. And on the other hand, when we look at the broader history of the Bible, it's a history of so much variety of what have to be seen as completely different Bibles for all intents and purposes, between one historical period and another, between one community and another. Um, in the, one, of the mo- one of the interesting cases is uh, leading up to and during the Civil War, two completely different uses of the Bible uh, vis-a-vis slavery, um, which were not just different readings of the Bible, that is to say, does the Bible support slavery or not, but completely different assemblages of what the biblical was. So you have in the South, the argument for a literal reading, more literal reading, the Bible talks about slavery, there were slaves, therefore slavery is, justi- is justified. Whereas uh, in the North, you have a what you might think of as a more um, uh, metaphorical reading in which uh, the Bible is trying to put forward a certain ideal of morality, not a certain, you know, literal words. And so if the ideal, the moral ideal that the Bible's trying to put forward would be against slavery, then, then that's, that's, that's justified. So, uh, you know, I think um, uh, it's important for me, what was, what's so exciting about it in the, in the end, what matters, is on the one hand to be realistic yeah, about existing in relationship to certain kinds of disciplines that we're expected to follow, a certain kind of disciplinarity that we're expected to follow in the field. But on the other hand also recognize how we are actually doing things with this text. We are not just trying to read it. We are constructing things. Um, to go back a little bit to the constructive theology question and theme, Mm -hmm. Um, we are ultimately constructing things as scholars, and that also means, uh, that we need to take a bit more responsibility, I think, um, for how we stake out the contours of what we ultimately choose to do with the Bible. In other words, simply saying we are going to present you with the Bible in its ancient Israelite context, because that's what it originally meant, is not really enough. We need to explain to our students why asking them to connect to the bible in its ancient israelite context would be significant for them potentially what it does when we make that connection why we ultimately try to go back there
2: this is so interesting that i'm i'm finding that i have to force myself not to ask further questions <laughs> but we we promised you that we would only have you take up so much of your time so i don't want to take up more of your time but before we let you go, we try to give every, every one of our guests a chance to make a public service announcement. So we often find that scholars, uh, they're often just misunderstood by people outside of their field. And so we give you a chance, if you'd like, to tell us what are some things that people outside of your field don't get about your work that you wish they did?
1: I think the hardest thing, um, and I think this is something we struggle with in terms of how we write our work, how we formulate it, um, is that, uh, of course, we are being critical. We are challenging certain categories, and when we challenge those categories, we run we run the risk of sounding like we're just negating them. Um, so you know, Lambert says there's no scripture, you know, or um, uh, <laughs> other things things of that of that kind of variety. And I do think that it's important um, to push back against the phrase scripture to challenge what I think that phrase does. But I ask, I, I would ask for, of, of people in general um, that when they encounter our work and this kind of work that it, it, it does have to be read, read patiently and slowly and deeply. Um, uh, because I think ultimately uh, a lot of times when you're engaged in a correction it, the correction needs to be seen as something more than just a negation. And to simply negate the category would be to end up someplace which isn't any better and maybe worse off. Um, so it's not the case that there is not scripture. Uh, it is, there are wonderful and important and impactful and also sometimes some dreadful uses um, to which the Bible have been put. These things have real power for people. They have a real life uh, of, their, of their own, they have a real existence in people's lives. But the nature of that existence does shift from the time period to time period and from community to community. And so that's, you know, that's what I'm really trying to um, uh, uh, trace here. It's not a denial, it's not a negation, um, but it's a sort of uh, redirection, a reassembly, if you will, of ultimately what the, the Bible is and can do.
0: David, thank you so much. Uh, This has been the Biggest Questions podcast. Our guest has been David Lambert from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, David, we hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Absolutely. Thank you so
1: much. I really enjoyed this conversation.